0: their whole life for answers to life's hardest questions. Or to someone who thinks they've found the answers to those questions but it's obvious that they're looking in the wrong places. I was on the phone yesterday with a a financial guy and we were Trying to find out some some information, and we were getting conf- conflicting reports. Um, some things online were saying one thing, and he was he had some other information, and he's like, ah, why You know, Google. We just Google everything, and we we look for answers, and nobody's got the right answers." And then he said something like, "You know, let's just Google the meaning of life." You know, and I'm like, "Well, I I think I know what that is." You know, and that's why I'm in the profession that I am. Uh, but it was a great reminder that. That question is burning on people's hearts. Tim shared it in his story. Like, why am I here? What, what is this all about? People, people want to know why they're alive. People want to know what the meaning and purpose of life is. Uh, When I was, when Lindsay and I went to China in 2003, uh, we were on a college campus doing campus ministry and I met a guy uh, named Michael. We were teaching some guys how to play American football and I met this guy named Michael And I'd been there several months. I'd had a lot of conversations with people. And I start talking to this guy. And he just starts asking me all these questions about the Bible and Christianity and American culture and all these things. And I was really just kind of shocked because it was clear that this guy wanted to know what life was about. He had been searching for meaning and purpose in life. And so there's this little book that we handed out. It was a testimony of, of this guy who had become a Christian, this Chinese guy. And I gave it to him and I said, you know start reading this if you have any questions you can you know write them down and and come talk to me and I'd done that I don't know how many times with other people and nobody had ever come to me with their questions well I get a text the next day from Michael he said I read the first chapter of the book and I have a bunch of questions can we meet tomorrow and we get together and he's got like two notebook pages just full of all of these questions and we sit down and he just starts talking about how from the time he was a little kid he knew that God was there but he just didn't know what to call him and when He knew that there was more meaning and purpose in life than than what was going on around him. And just as I began to walk with him and and unpack the truth of the gospel to him, it was amazing to see God just open his eyes. Uh, Last week, when Dr. Carroll was here, he shared from Job chapter 28, and we looked at how humans dive down into the deepest parts of the earth, and they search, and and they're just searching for rocks, basically. Uh, They're trying to find... Meaning they're trying to find it in gold or silver. And all it is 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 rocks. And he titled his sermon, The Impossible Human Quest. And then the question was asked there in Job 28 verse 12. Where shall wisdom be found? We search for all these things, but where is wisdom? And the conclusion is that God knows the way to wisdom. God says at the end of the chapter, God speaks to man. He says, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. How do we as Christians, how do we as the church, as God's representatives on this earth, how do we serve as a guide to a world that is looking for answers in all of the wrong places? Now for some of you... You get really excited when you think about this, when you think about having an opportunity to talk to people about Jesus, to have these conversations. For others of you, if you're like me, it's a little bit exciting, but it's also a little bit nerve-wracking. You're kind of like, oh, I don't know what this person's going to think, or I don't know what to say all the time. That's okay. Maybe some of you are like, there's no way. I'm, I believe this, but there's no way I'm talking to other people about it. Or maybe you're here today and you're not really sure what you believe about Christianity and what you believe about the Bible. No, maybe you're here because, like my friend Michael, you say, I want some answers. I know there's something more out there and I want some answers. Or maybe you're here, maybe somebody drug you here, maybe you don't want to be here and you're like, I don't think there's answers, what's this guy talking about? Um, but wherever you're at on that journey, and we're all in different places, I'm excited that you're here this morning. I'm excited to be able to share God's word with you and see what his word tells us about this journey that we're on. So we're going to be looking at Job chapters 29 to 31. And again, with the help of the framework that I explained earlier, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We're going to be unpacking that a little bit as we go through these chapters. Um, I've found this creation, fall, redemption, consummation framework, really helpful, not just for myself, for better understanding the gospel, but for being able to explain it to other people. And if you're interested, I got some great resources, some books and articles that kind of explain that a little bit more. Um, let me know. Um, when we first, again, when we first went to China, um, we were I was trained in a method of, of sharing the gospel that was like, you know, here's this little pamphlet with all the answers and you just download the information to people, and then let them, you know, make a decision to receive Christ. Um, Later on, I learned, I don't like the word method, but a method that we called conversational evangelism that took this creation, fall, redemption, and consummation framework and taught us how do you talk to people about your faith on a day-to-day basis? How do you take something that happened in the world or a newspaper article or a story that someone tells you about their life how do you dive into that story and unpack the gospel without just this one, two, three, four here you go and what was really helpful in this creation, fall, redemption consummation framework was four questions if you're taking notes I would, I would write these down because we're going to be kind of talking about these um, the four questions and they match up with, with the four stages is Ought, is, can, and will. How ought the world be creation? How is the world now fall? How can the world be redemption? And how will the world be consummation? In these three chapters of Job, we see Job longing, lamenting, and appealing He's longing for the ought. He's lamenting the is. And he's appealing to the can. Now just a reminder for you about kind of the overall structure of Job. It's a really long book and you know, we're trying to remind you of kind of how it works. And it's, it's, uh, it's hard for me sometimes to keep it all straight. But basically Job is bookend by two chapters in the beginning that are prose. It's just an explanation of who Job is and what happened and God allowing Satan to attack him and all these things that are happening in his life. And then the very last chapter is um, Job repenting and the Lord answering Job's friends and then restoring Job. But in the middle, all these chapters in the middle from chapter 3 to chapter 41, it's all poetry. And it's all arranged um, Chapter three is Job lamenting his birth, which kind of mirrors these chapters we're looking at because it's just Job's monologue. It's him talking. It's not a dialogue with his friends. Chapters four to twenty-seven are or um, four through twenty-four through twenty-seven, and then twenty-eight, the wisdom chapter. It's, it's these dialogues with friends, and so there's all this back and forth with these three friends. And then next week uh, we'll be looking at the another monologue. It's Elihu uh, who comes and speaks to Job and then the Lord answers Job. So we're kind of getting towards the end of that. I think the wisdom chapter is kind of like a middle thing that it all hinges on. So now we're kind of we're working towards some resolution here. Um, I think these three chapters are a lot easier to follow than the conversations with the friends. Things are just kind of all over the place. And you, sometimes you're like, who's talking and what's going on? This is just Job, so it's a little bit easier. I think it'll be easier to follow. And so here we get to see Job's final appeal. It's kind of like a deathbed statement. Um, Job is he's just tired. He's tired of suffering. And he's, he's calling out to God. And this is kind of a, the last the last statement. And, and we need to remember where Job is physically. He's been cast out of town. Everyone's rejected him. We're going to see that here in, this, in these chapters. Uh, he's sitting on an ash heap. And his wife has abandoned him. His, his friends are all against him. And he's left here alone asking God, God, where are you? Why am I suffering? And, and where are you? Again, I think these chapters really lay it out beautifully. So this will help us kind of dive in and, and understand what's going on. Um, so a couple questions. What can we learn from Job? Obviously, it's here in our Bibles. There's, there has to be something tangible for us to take from this. What can we learn? And, and what can those things that we learn, how can those things inform the way that we talk to other people about who Christ is? If we really desire to be and to do what our vision statement says, a people together reconciled by grace, that's the be part, and the do is by grace reconciling what is broken, if we really want to live that out, then we need to be serious about understanding who we are and what God has called us to do. And again, these chapters in Job, they're going to lay it out really clearly for us. So let's go there. Enough talking about it. Let's let's dive in and see what God would have for us this morning. First thing I want us to see, Job chapter 29, is we should long for the ought. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I... Were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when His lamp shone upon my head, and by His light I walked through darkness. As I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. Job is longing for the way that it used to be. He's longing for that time when he had friendship and fellowship with God, when his children were all around him. And it talks here of this, the butter and the oil, that's speaking of God's abundant provision. Job is looking back and remembering those days. And again, we don't know how long ago that was. We don't know when, when all of this started happening. You know, I, I don't think it was just a couple hours over a course of conversation. I think this is probably many months that he is sitting there, weeks at least, maybe longer. So Job is is thinking back to how things used to be, and this this ought is you know again it's it's related with creation, um, and we you don't need to think about that. Job here. Um, What he's longing for obviously isn't the same as Adam walking in the Garden of Eden with with God and there was no sin. Job still lived in a world where there was sin, where there's the effects of the fall. But he's looking back and longing for something that is at least similar to creation, a right relationship with God and a good relationship with other people. And if we're honest, we all in our lives experience this same kind of longing, don't we? You know, we think, oh, I remember back when I was a kid. Back in the good old days. Or we hear the phrase, make America great again. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to rip on that phrase. I think what that is playing on is a real felt need that people have. It's like, things used to be good. And we want to get back to that. And that's understandable. Understandable. And I, I, I see why people get excited about that. Well, it's not only Job's relationship with God and restoration of, of his family life that he longs for. Let's look at verses 7 through 10. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth the voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth Job had influence when he showed up at the city gate people noticed people stopped and they paid attention to him when he spoke the princes and the nobles didn't even dare to speak it says their tongues were stuck to the roof of their mouth when Job came on the scene Verses 11 through 20, we're not going to read all of that. Uh, Job explains how he delivered the poor and the fatherless, the widow and the needy. Job didn't just talk a big game. He didn't just make all of these promises about all of these things that he was going to do. He got down and dirty and he helped the lowest of the low. Let's look at verses 21 to 25 together. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. So Job had it all. He had power. He had influence. He had respect in the community. It says he lived like a king among his troops. He had protection. He had people around him who cared about him and who who protected them. But he lived with them. He was in their presence. He was on their level. He was a humble leader. And this is the way it ought to be. This is the kind of thing, the kind of society, the kind of environment that we ought to long for. This is what people around us are longing for. A world where relationships are characterized by righteousness and justice. So what do we say to people? What do we say when those who are around us who are searching for answers ask the question, why? Why is the world in the mess that it's in? Why is our country falling apart? Why is my marriage or my relationship with my kids falling apart? Why can't I maintain healthy interpersonal relationships? Do we have answers to those questions? Can we guide people in their search for the ought? Where is wisdom? If we can answer that question... And if we can see deep down how we and others are all longing for the ought, I think we can provide answers to people's questions. But it's not just enough to know the answers. It's not just enough to point them to the ought. We've been talking a lot throughout the book of Job about sitting in it, especially the conversations with the friends. You can't just, you can't just sit down and read the book of Job straight through. There's too much going on. You need, to, you need to read these conversations with the friends. You need to read these chapters, 29 to 31. You really need to sit in it. You need to let, just let it soak in. And sometimes we need to sit with people in the is. We need to listen to their laments. We need to weep with those who weep, and we need to mourn with those who mourn. Not just give someone a pat answer. Not just say, oh, well, Jesus will just fix all your problems. He will, but maybe not right away. Let's look together at chapter 30. We're going to see, the second thing here is that we should lament the is. The way this is set up, um, chapters 29 and 30, it's kind of helpful to to understand this. It's called a chiasm. Uh, If you have ever studied anything about Hebrew poetry, you really can't study Hebrew poetry without kind of understanding how this works. It's, it's just really there. Um, there's whole books of the Bible that are set up this way. So it's like A, B, B, A. So there's a statement and then there's another statement. That's repeated and then it's back to the original statement. So the A's mirror each other, the B's mirror each other. So if you can picture this, in Job 29, the first part, chapters 1 through 6, Job is describing how he had fellowship with God. Okay, that's the first step. Then in the second part of chapter 29, it's talking about his dignity and his influence on other people. So it goes from God to others. Now in chapter 30, he's going to stick with the others theme, verses 1 to 5. He's going to talk about others indignity toward him. And at the end of the chapter, he's going to back up and talk about his relationship with God. So that's kind of how it's set up. And if you read through this yourself, you'll see it. Um, It's just helpful to kind of have that visual in your mind. Verse 1, chapter 30. But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. These words, but now, uh, these can be glorious words. They're actually my probably my two favorite words in the whole Bible. And maybe you know why and where they occur. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul talks about how we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're children of wrath. And then verse 4 says, but now, but now what? But now God has done what? He's saved us. He's raised us up. He's seated us with Christ. But now, two amazing words, two glorious words. But they can also be two dreadful words. And we see that here. It's a total reversal of Job's fortunes. But now they laugh at me. This word in Hebrew, laugh, if you look back up two verses in twenty nine, twenty four, Job says, I smiled on them when they had no confidence. Same exact word. Job smiled on these people. Job loved and took care of these people, and now they're smiling, laughing at him. This is very deliberate. I mean, it's just switched right away. It's like Ephesians 2, from horrible to awesome. Job goes from awesome to horrible, just like that. The tables are turned. I love how the New Living Translation puts this verse. It says, But now I am mocked by people younger than I, by young men whose fathers are not worthy to run with my sheepdogs. These are some bad dudes. Um, Job goes on in verses 2 to 8 to describe these guys. They're bad guys from from bad families, and now they're mocking Job. Job has become the outcast of outcasts. Let's read together verses 9 through 15. And now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the side of me. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my presence. On my right hand, the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me with their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll on, terrors are turned upon me my honor is pursued as by the wind and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud Uh, verse 9 here these words and now it's the same Hebrew as but now in verse 1 so it's the same thing Job is describing this reversal of fortunes it's bad enough um, that they laughed at him now here in verse 9 they're making songs about him why are they doing this? Why have the tables turned? Job tells us in verse eleven, because God has loosed my cord and humbled me. The imagery here is of a bowstring being cut. Um, in chapter twenty-nine, twenty-five, Job says that he was a king among his troops. Now I kind of picture Job sitting in the middle of maybe these huge chariots, and he's got his bow, and he's just taking people out. He's protected. He's got. Armors, armor guys around him. He's not going to be hurt. And now what happens? Whew, snap. God has cut his bow. He's vulnerable. He's, he's a goner. Verse 14 um, explains how Job's life is, is like a city that was once safe with gates and walls and, and now it's breached. Now it's under siege. And everything that he had verse 15, everything that he had has been blown away. And now he sits on this ash heap lamenting the is. Let's read together verses 16 to 23. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Again, this section starts off, and now. Verse 19, Job, again, he he blames God for abandoning him. And his cry here in these verses is similar to the Psalms of lament that we see in many of the Psalms. Where the psalmist is saying, God, where are you? Why won't you answer me? Why won't you come to my rescue? Verses 20 to 23 here. This is the only time in these chapters that Job really directly addresses God. And the weight here of of these feelings of abandonment that Job is expressing are so heavy. Just look at the language here in, in verses 20 and 21. I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. This is heavy, heavy stuff that Job is going through. And maybe you can relate to this. Maybe right now in your life, you kind of feel like, yep, God's hand is is pretty heavy on me right now. God, where are you? Why am I going through these things? It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to tell other people about it. It's okay to tell God that that's how you feel. We don't want, you know, we're not here again, we're not here to be entertained, we're not here to pretend. We're not here to come and be like, oh, it's Sunday, I got my got my game face on, I'm I'm good to go, just gonna make everything look good. Don't do that. Please, (laughs) don't do that. We wanna we want this to be a safe place for you. We want this to be a place where you can come and you can be real. You don't have to tell the whole church, but just find find a person. It doesn't have to be me or one of the other elders. Find a friend. Find someone who you can talk to. We want this to be a place where it's okay to struggle. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts. And like we've been encouraging for us to sit in Job, if you you know someone is is hurting and struggling, go. Just encourage them. Sit with them in it and listen. Verses 24 to 31, uh, they further describe in really poetic detail the reversal of Job's fortunes. Again, we have a man here who, who feels himself to be under the wrath and the curse of God, forsaken by God and not because of something that he himself has done. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? There was another one who lamented the terror of the is. One who suffered unjustly. A king Who was mocked by those he was sent to serve and protect? The creator of the universe who took on flesh and suffered unimaginable rejection and persecution, only to have that flesh beaten and torn by the ones who he came to to show the true way to wisdom. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? was his cry. His city walls were breached, and his gates were broken down. His bowstring was cut by God, and his closest friends rejected him and fled. And yet we know that this was foretold, that he would be one who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men men hide their faces. And while Job here, his suffering is undeserved, we never really understand fully why he suffered. And we know that his suffering was not ultimately redemptive suffering. Only the suffering of the perfect Son of God on that cross, for you and for me, has the power to redeem us from this broken world. To redeem us from the terror of the is. And that's the message that this broken world outside of these walls needs to hear. If we're going to come alongside people and sit with them in their suffering, provide comfort for them in the midst of their afflictions, we can't come without the hope of the gospel. And the good news is that we don't not have answers to their questions. We know what the answer is. Now again, It might not be just pray this prayer and Jesus is going to fix all your problems. It might take months. It might take years. But we need to sit with them in that. I was at the YMCA uh, last week and uh, an African-American guy that I've been getting to know named Marquise, he came in when I was kind of coming out. He's like, man, what do you think about all these shootings by these police lately? And I'm like... (sighs) You know, it, there's not a simple answer, right? I don't just say, "Oh yeah, it's bad." Like, see you later. But I, like, there's so many levels to this, right? And I, you know, first of all, I said, well, "Man, this world is broken, and we need Jesus." But I, I can't stop there, right? And I said, "That's that's up here, right? That's that's big picture stuff. We need people need to be reconciled to God." But also on this level, things are broken. And there's hate and people aren't loving each other and we got to fix that too. If, if, if these things are going to change, there's a lot of work on both of those levels that need to be fixed. Again, yeah, we, just, we can't talk about just fixing problems just okay, be reconciled to God, and everything's good. This this vertical element that's important. This horizontal element is, is just as important. And I guess as we look here at Job chapter thirty-one, we're going to see we're going to see Job make his final appeal, and it's actually it's kind of this dual appeal. He's appealing vertically to God, and he's appealing horizontally about his relationships with other people. How has Job been true to God? And how has he loved and served other people? That's what we're going to see in the last chapter. So the third thing that I want us to see is that we should appeal to the can. Again, the can is the redemption stage. It's the hope that God is going to come through in the end. And and then he's going to deliver Job from his misery. Now obviously for Job, this is not as clear. It wasn't as clear for him as it is for us today on this side of the cross. Here's what we do know. We know that Job obviously doesn't have a full, clear picture of who the Messiah is. He doesn't have a clear picture of his need for Jesus' death on the cross to pay for his sins. We've, we've been over that over the last few weeks. But Job, like others in the Old Testament, had faith in God. He had true faith in God. And he looked forward to God redeeming him and rescuing him. So we can't just, we can't just cut this like, oh, he didn't really get it, whatever. He, he believed. He was a believer. And you know when we talk about Job being righteous, there is an element of the righteousness of God given to him because of his faith. And so there, there is that element of, of that. So just keep that in mind. Um, also, what we know, we know what God says about Job. We saw in chapters 1 and 2. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. And he holds fast to his integrity even though Satan sought to destroy his life. So we know what God thinks about Job. But remember, Job hasn't heard that. Job doesn't know this He didn't hear this conversation that went on between God and Satan. So you really feel that in this chapter. Job's kind of like, what's going on here? Job still thinks that God is out to get him. And that's where this final appeal comes from. Another thing... In this chapter, don't get hung up on thinking, well, Job's just appealing to his own righteousness and his own integrity. Um, It's not that he's trusting in his good works here. He's affirming that these good works that he's done are consistent with his faith in God. They're an outflow of his faith in God. We're going to dig into that in a little bit. But let's, let's go to the text here. Job chapter 31, verses 1 to 4. I have made a covenant with my eyes, How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? Job's appeal here is to a clear conscience before the one who numbers his steps. It's both inwardly focused, saw this covenant that he's making with his eyes, it's talking about his heart, his integrity, but it's also outwardly focused. He's talking about his steps and his ways. Job is concerned that his walk and his talk line up, that out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth will speak. Well, if it didn't overwhelm you already with all of these structures and all these things, there's one more, sorry, this is really important for this chapter. This chapter is broken up into all these little sections. Job is making these statements and there's there's four different parts. Not each section has all four parts, but all four parts are there and some of them have all four parts. The first part is the if statement. So if I have committed blank sin, so if, then, then God you can do this to me, do whatever. And this is kind of the retribution principle coming in here. We've talked about that. If, then, because, he's going to say, why this is a sin. You can do this to me, God, because this is my sin. And then the last one is, but. And Job is making an appeal to why he is innocent. If, then, because, and but. The topics that are covered throughout this chapter, this isn't even an exhaustive list, but he's going to talk about dishonesty, adultery, oppression, Trust in wealth, idolatry, vindictiveness, hypocrisy, exploitation, and on and on. There's more. This is a very thorough list that Job goes through. It's a list of things that I think help us to better understand. This is really important. Why did Job have the influence in the community that he did in chapter 29? When Job rolls into town, and even the princes and the nobles don't speak, why is that? Job's integrity as a leader was vitally important. People followed him because they trusted him and they respected him. He treated them with respect. And he earned that trust and that respect by the way he lived his life. Again, as we go through these, we're going to see that I think there's always a connection between the heart motive and the outward action. We can't separate those two things. In verses 5 to 8, we're not going to read it, but Job appeals to his honesty both in his heart and with his hands, with his desires, with the way he loved others, and and with the way he did things with his hands. Let's look at verses 9 through 12. We'll read that. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. that would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. for that would be a fire that consumes as far as a bad, and it would burn to the root of all my increase. These are some, these are some tough verses. And this is very explicit language here. he 's not, not mixing words here. The retribution principle that you, if you do bad, you 're going to get bad. If you do good, you 're going to get good. That's, that's what Job's talking about. He's talking about that and then he's talking about an eye for an eye. If I do these things, let it be done to me. Here he's saying, my heart has not been enticed and I have not acted on it. Guys, how are we doing here? Job's appeal here in these verses is very closely tied to Proverbs chapter 6, 27-29. I want to talk about wisdom? This is wisdom. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Verses 34 and 35 of Proverbs 6, 6. Go on even further. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. You're not buying your way out or smooth-talking your way out of this. And Job is dead serious about the purity of his heart. He knows that it's game over if he doesn't guard his heart. Guys, I implore you, guard your hearts. I don't care if you're 5 or if you're 85. Guard your hearts. Your very life depends on it. And ladies, you're not off the hook either. <laughs> I'm not going to you know, list the things you struggle with and yell at you like I just yelled at the guys. But I want to encourage you. As we go through this list, as we go through these things in Job, you need to guard your hearts too. And guys, there's things in this list that also you need to guard your hearts. It's not... I'm not saying just try harder. Just be a better person. It's not what I'm saying. But this is wisdom. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Job goes on, verses 13 to 15. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When when he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? If you were here last week for Dr. Carroll's immigration talk, this topic came up. I don't care if we're talking about Syrian refugees. I don't care if we're talking about undocumented workers, homeless people in our communities, or our next door neighbor who hates Christianity and hates us and thinks we're crazy. Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? We have to get this right. If we're going to love and serve people in our communities, we have to get this right. And this is what my friend Marcus needs to hear from me. Not just as a Christian, but as a human being. God doesn't have a caste system. We're not like the good guys. We're not special. We're not more moral necessarily than those around us just because we're Christians. Our hearts are just as prone to wander, to look at people. I do it all the time. I mean, you look at someone and just immediately, oh, they're this or they're that. God God needs to help us. He needs to change our hearts. We all need redemption. And this is this is why we appeal to the can, and this is why the can of redemption is so important. We all need to be redeemed from the same curse of sin and death. Job goes on, verses 24 to 28. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges for I would have been false to God above. Job's saying, I'm not trusting my wealth. I'm not worshiping the sun and the moon. I'm not committing adultery or idolatry. Again, heart and actions. We're going to jump down to um, verses 33 and 34. Job says If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I have kept silence and did not go out of doors. This is really important. Job here in this verse, he admits that he has transgressions. We need to see that as we go. Job's never claiming that he's perfect in the book of Job. He's never saying, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm, a, I'm not a sinner. God, how can you be doing this to me? He says, if I have concealed my transgressions as others do. He's saying here, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not, I'm not hiding my sins from other people. I'm not hiding them from you, God. And now we come here, verses 35 to 37. This is, this is Job's final challenge. It's his final plea. There's actually one small section after it in verses 38 to 40. Um, but this is, this is the heart of the confrontation here. Verses 35 to 37, let's read this. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Job says, I'm putting my name on it. God, if you can prove that I'm guilty, if you can show me the list of my sins, then let me have it. I'll carry it on my shoulder, I'll put it on my crown like a head. I'll give you an account of all my steps. This is a pretty bold challenge. This is this is it's pretty gutsy. And like we said, whether Job understood or not perfectly in his day what was going on here, his relationship with God, his righteousness. We, on this side of the cross, we understand it. We understand that we have had the righteousness of God revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we can actually do what Job has done here, in a sense. We can come to God with a a bold claim because he has put his signature on it. He has written paid in full and that frees us up to live lives of integrity, to keep our hearts and our minds pure to love others and treat them as equals and to not be afraid that we're being self-righteous or promoting justification by works I think in our reformed circles we, we get so afraid of words like piety and holiness and good works well, if we claim that those are the things that save us, then I want to rip those words right out of the dictionary. Let's get rid of them. If, if those are the things that make us right with God, I don't want any part of that. But what if we view it correctly? That those things are the fruit and not the root. What does Jesus tell us about being salt and light and being cities on a hill? Let your light shine before others so that they will see what? Your good works. And do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Good works are good. They point people to the Lord. And God gets glory from them. Ephesians 2.10, God has prepared good works for us in advance that we should walk in them, that we should do them, that we should fulfill his purposes for us. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, and I'll, I'll end with this. Peter writes, Beloved, keep in mind the language here, again, related to our immigration conversation last week. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Folks, the world around us is going to think we're crazy. Okay? We just... They are. We need to be okay with that. We're we're probably going to be accused of all sorts of things, like Job was, like Jesus was. But Jesus is coming back. And when he does, what are people going to say? Will they see our good deeds and glorify God? This is the will of the ought, is, can, and will. The will is consummation when Jesus comes again and he makes all things right. In the meantime, we struggle and we suffer and we hope and we wait and we pray in the is, knowing that the can has already happened and the will will. Brothers and sisters, let us not lose hope and let us go out into this world and let our lights shine before others so that they will see our good deeds and give glory to our father who is in heaven let's pray god what a what a vivid picture in these chapters what a reminder of of life of of good things of bad things of of how we live, of how we bring glory to you. We thank you so much for your son who came, who defeated death, who overcame the terror of the is, who brought us the reality of the can because of his redemption. God, we look forward to the will. We look forward to the day when you come again and make all things right. God, give us Give us peace. Give us strength. Give us perseverance to, to run this race when it's difficult. To trust you when, when things don't make sense. To hope in you when it just feels sometimes like everything around us is crashing in. God, we trust you and we need you. Comfort your people, Lord. Strengthen us and send us out. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank <sharp inhale> you.